welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I'm joined by Jean Graham. Jean is an architect and the director of Winter Architecture, a five-year-old practice based in Melbourne and Torquay. In this episode, we discussed Winter's approach to remote working, the importance of maintaining work-life balance and avoiding burnout, why Jean produces a new video for each of her projects, how to communicate the value of what an architect does to potential clients, how to pick the right clients, and why you need to be patient in your marketing, why you should show less on your website, the benefits of collaboration with other creatives, and how to make decisions about how big to grow your practice. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Jean Graham from Winter Architecture. I start off by asking her about the origins of their flexible working structure. You guys were doing like the remote COVID work life, you know, way before it was cool. I'd just be kind of interested to know a little bit about the flexible structure, the the team, how, how that sort of stuff works and, you know, where, where it kind of came from. Yeah, so um, when I started Winter Architecture about five years ago now, um, the idea was that I didn't really like the model where you had to work in the office all the time, in that, in that I often found that with design and um, creating buildings with clients, you ended up having to you visit their houses or you work in a coffee shop where you get inspired by being in different places. And I actually travelled a lot with my previous career and I found that there were lots of opportunities in larger firms for people who work remotely and work cohesively internationally and interstate. So I really like that idea, but the difference was they always had a centralised server within an office, and I didn't really think that was great. So um, doing some research, speaking of some colleagues and friends of mine, um, we got onto G Suite, which now is pretty common. Everyone's sort of onto it, and what we do is we have a shared online cloud-based um, system, and we set up two studios. We have one in Fitzroy and one in Torquay. Um, and, and that was all about work-life balance for me personally because I work, used to work phenomenal hours and a lot of my friends that are now colleagues in practice um, also work long hours and I found that that was unhealthy and it was kind of, I don't know how to put it, architects go for a very long time and uh, sometimes I felt like burnout was a common trait amongst my friends. So. What I thought was, well, how do you create more balance and how do you create um, well-being and mindfulness, I guess, in practice? So the way we did it was um, just trying to work regular hours. I still tend to work over them, but I always put down every hour that I work, even if it's at night time, on my phone or in an app. And that means that uh, this cloud-based system means that I can track all my time, charge all my time, and then be more productive and efficient because if I'm if I'm mentally well and and if I feel like I'm being productive then my clients get a better product they get it more efficiently and they're also open to receiving things digitally too because I think a lot of our clients are probably more um, forward thinking so it's it's like an ageless philosophy there's no sort of um, it's about mindset it's about being open to trying new things and being flexible and 
testing out new ideas. And I think that says a lot about the way we work is how we also design buildings. Yeah. So did you feel like when you were coming out of big practices and then going into starting your small practice, you were like, oh, I can't believe people do things this way? Or did it come as a bit of a bit of a shock or was it something that you were aware of yeah, very um, early on that small practices tend to operate in this really centralised way? I felt that, and I think this is a stereotype, I think, but I felt like it was a big city, big office, men's world, you know, glass ceiling, all of that. It was just very, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of stress um, and not much opportunity. And I was thinking to myself, well, this doesn't make sense. And I think also for people if they've got children or if they just have different ways of living, um, health, like if they're not feeling 100% all the time or they have other family commitments or they just want to value their time. They might only want to work four days a week. Uh, and then I think that, that that doesn't work well in bigger office structures. Mm. And so that's why I was like, well, how can I make it work? Um, and so that's where that started from. And then looking at other practices that were smaller, they were using a lot of technology that might have been sort of current and fine and efficient for them at time. But there's sort of like this forecasting, you know, maybe people forecast six months for finances and then they forecast annually for budgeting. But the way I was thinking about technology was, well, what do I need in 10 years' time? So when you think about it like that, what is the world going to be looking like? People want to see things in 3D, so understanding BIM technology, which is very common in larger practice and expected in larger practice, but not expected in smaller practice. But if people do provide it in smaller practice, it's sort of not um, common or not really utilised in the same way or it seems to be challenging. So one thought was, well, why don't, it's like a business model of a larger practice, but in a smaller practice. And it means that we can have more people with the best expertise working more efficiently and more effectively so they don't get burnt out and then they hopefully want to stay and work longer. And then it also means that we can focus on what we, we want to focus on, which is quality projects and quality outcomes so that, you know, we, at the end of the day, we're all mortal beings and so it's knowing the purpose in your life is that you can create these beautiful buildings that people can love and exist in and that's where I find a lot of joy in my purpose. Mm. Yeah. Do you, do you find that being a forward-thinking practice on the technology side and operations uh, and then also looking to attract clients that are forward-thinking and, you know, that sort of thing, do, does does that ever come into your thinking about how you talk about the practice? Um, like that that's going to be something that's seen as like a benefit of working with us or maybe a really attractive yeah. part of working with us as a practice? Yeah. And, and I mean, it is, it's every individual is different. So um, when, uh, when I really started, it was me and then a friend, Jack, who started working with us. Um, and then eventually it started to grow and then people would choose to work in the office and then I'll choose to work remotely. And that remote purpose really came about from a couple of staff members needing to work interstate so Claire would work from WA and Jack would work from New South Wales and then our bookkeepers from Brisbane so I think it was it was a sort of psychological challenge at the beginning but then once we got over that we were able to um, it was easy it was fine it was actually more efficient because we could tap into each other a lot quicker um, the difference though is the psychological well-being 
So Claire was really good working remotely uh, on her own in her home and, and we all, I think, have experienced lockdown and we all can now relate to that kind of sense yeah. of isolation and social uh, issues for, that yeah. can be caused from that. But what we found for people working remotely, so for Claire, I found this a, a studio she could work from in Perth there was similar philosophy. Philip Stasebo Architects, brilliant architects. Yeah. And um, she was working from their office and then, and coincidentally, one of his staff members, also named Claire, moved to Melbourne yeah. from our office. So we had like a Claire swap. And what that <laughs> meant was that they could both be in an office, similar scale, you get that kind of, you know, you, you don't have to talk to anyone all day really. But yeah. You get absorb that kind of sense of community and socialness and connection or you just dress up and you go into yeah. an office, and that can make a difference. The difference is, though, choice. So mm. Claire could choose to go into that office or she could choose to work from home, but to say that, she had all the equipment at home. So all our staff members tend to have computers set up at, at, at home or the laptops that they can take around. Um, so that means that the flexibility is, is on them a little bit. Uh, whereas, so we still provide the option of the office and then working remotely, which is now something that people are trying to do. Yeah. And unfortunately, I have a, I have a, like a, 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 have a feeling that now that lockdowns happen, a lot of businesses are going, oh, great, I don't need offices anymore. Let's get rid of the office. Everyone can work from home. I think that might not be the way to go. I think it needs to be a balance. Um, a lot of the professionalism that clients require, especially in our industry, is, is design oriented. It's face-to-face. So you still do need that. And yep. I think that uh, it's important to understand that balance is important. So having maintaining a, a structured office environment and giving your, your staff the choice to work remotely or not. So I actually prefer now to work in the office from mm-hmm. in a structured environment but I do have, say, you know, um, maybe 80% of the time I'm in the office and the 20% I'm not. But then there's months where different types of projects and different kinds of stages of a project require me to be interstate or require me to be thinking at a different level. So I choose to work remotely for those reasons. But if mm. you just force it onto people, I think that's where the problem comes from. Yeah, right. I get the impression that most architects have just gone back to the office now. Obviously, this is a bigger audience than just Melbourne that's listening to this podcast. There's there's people in the UK that still haven't gone back to the office and and elsewhere. But um, I get the feeling that after the lockdowns and after being at home, there's this sense of we're going back to the office and now work from home isn't a, isn't as much of an option. Um, if you're an employee of a of a slightly you know medium or bigger okay. small size practice. Um, yeah, that's a bit disappointing, I think. Yeah, I think so too. It's kind of seems seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. Well, I think, the, the, well, I guess like with anything, if people aren't happy in those environments, they'll require change and change will have to happen organically. And I think if you're a forward-thinking practice or you want to maintain stuff for a long period of time and make them, you know, feel happy, yeah. happy and welcome, I think you, you have try and have to, you may have to try and be more, open-minded with the way you work. Yeah. I, I, you, you, you're super technology oriented. So I've got a, a bit of a technology question. I'm sure everyone's sort of solved this problem already, but a couple of the firms that I've spoken to about how being at home or in the office now, they, they're dealing with the idea that we actually need pretty powerful computers to do a lot of the, 
digital work that we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of difficult to have one of those in the office and be able to provide one at home. And during the yeah. lockdowns, it was always a case of sort of going in on Friday night, putting it in the back of the car and taking it home and then bringing it back when the when the restrictions eased. And yeah. it seems like a weird barrier, but how do you guys get, do you sort of change your processes to be more capable on like a normal laptop or what is, what is your kind of approach for dealing no, with some of those things? We still use... Um, uh, we have iPads that we use for markup, so some of the staff members don't need to be on um, the high processing equipment yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, so if there's site meetings or that sort of thing that can change, um, obviously the documentation side of things is really it's revit heavy. Yeah, and we use all our all our programs are cloud based, so we use Adobe Suite for all our production and at revit for all our documentation. So that's building integration modeling. So we, we tend to, that's quite heavy, but it's all cloud-based, so you can log in. So the idea is that a bit like um, any university structure, you can you log into your computer and then you can access um, uh, any of the programs by logging in. Yeah. And then you can be here, you can be at home, you can be in Torquay, you can be anywhere. Um, yeah. That's how you access the programs and stuff. So then, right, okay, they're loaded on your computer, but they're not necessarily um, oh, like processing on your computer. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they you can process through the cloud as well. So we yeah. have a bit like um, at the moment yeah. um, because we haven't found that we needed the larger one. But if we did, that would be something. But often too, um, we each of the stuff. Um, so we all tend to have the same equipment. We all yeah. we all we. Brand happy here, Mac users. Yeah, um, and so that they tend to be. We always tend to get higher RAM and things yeah. like that when we buy. But we we find that that they seem to last the test of time. But you can yeah. get um, other PC options that have really high quality RAM and things for yeah. under a thousand dollars. And that and then as a business, if you were to purchase a few of those, that probably would work just for the Revit side of things. Yeah. Um, but personally, these not only the design but the aesthetic and the effectiveness of using a Mac we found is quite good. So, yeah. yeah. We're getting we're – getting, I wanted to go into the weeds for a second there just to find out kind of what you were doing on the, on the on that side of things. But I am interested in – you mentioned kind of time tracking and sort of your own productivity, your burnout, your well-being and, and sort of the same for everybody else on the team as well. That you, Do you find that um, – you know, what – do you find that your – you have to be a little bit more careful about that when you, you know, you have to be more sensitive to that, I suppose, and working out where those limits are and deciding whether or not it's a time to be a lot more productive or less productive, take a step back. I guess you're kind of, how's, how do you approach that and sort of managing your well-being and making sure that you're not overdoing it? I think, um, I think what it is, is it's not, there's no answer. It's just about listening to yourself and your body and your needs and then also listening to your colleagues and your work environment and also managing the workflow so that you don't um, feel too pressured or overwhelmed because I think the thing, the interesting thing about um, architects and designers is that we set our own deadlines and clients are pretty open. They have, they have deadlines but they don't really know the process fully and that's, that's fine. That's what we are in control of. So mm-hmm. we're the ones that have to manage that time. And I think the difference too with the way that we work, which might be more like bigger practice and less like small practices, we try, try and share roles a lot more. So there's a more transparency about 
how we produce projects so that people can step in if someone needs to step out for a bit. So if you can, okay. if you if you're not if you feel like you're not alone and there's a team behind you, that makes a big difference. Uh, and also, if you if you've ever been through the design process, sometimes you might hit a big wall because you oh, should I put the door there or should I put the door there? Those silly little questions can sometimes go round and round and round. And if you just have a conversation with someone else to bounce it off, like an internal critique, like at university, mm. which I'm a big fan of, group work and group critique. I think then you can resolve issues and then often if if the if those um, design solutions are unpacked like that, then sometimes you can come up with better solutions that yeah. you may have thought of originally. And that can elevate the project even further. And if you think about it from a client's perspective, that means that the more people you have involved in the design, the better the outcome in a lot of ways. It's much more richer. But then you can actually also, you know, you, you're getting really quality product. Mm. Um, I think that's really desirable for clients. So you picked up on something there that is interesting and that, that clients are some architects sometimes put more pressure on themselves than the client is actually exerting. Yeah. Is that something that, is that just, <laughs> you, you've definitely seen that as a common, like as a common trend in the industry or it's a common uh, habit? I know, I know. Uh, let's put it this way. We, we work in a, in a sort of a closed environment and then every now and then we come out of that environment to meet with the client. Mm. But in the office behind the doors, there's kind of a lot of chaos and a lot of work going on behind the scenes. And then the client's presented with a design, a clean package. But behind the scenes, there's often lots of sketches, lots of conversation, lots of thinking, lots of late nights or ideas that are sketched into a book, that kind of stuff. But we compile it and make it really neat. But behind the scenes, it's quite chaotic sometimes. And often we, we set deadlines for cash flow reasons or expectations that are put up on us by tender or other, other to win a project, we might go, oh, we'll do it more efficiently, but then we don't allow enough space for ourselves to actually produce the design. So I think it's important to maybe take it a little bit slower and be really clear with the client about that process and then um, then you can allow yourself a bit more space so that you can provide that outcome without actually pushing yourself too far and creating other issues. Mm. Um, I am a little bit concerned about um, industry, like if if... if the work environment is too pressured, then it cannot be, it cannot last a long time. So I think that um, I'm kind of going backwards in my mindset a little bit about like, you know, before the industrial revolution, how did people used to work? They used to be much more intuitive, connected with nature, um, slower in time with their bodies and in time with the, the daylight hours, that kind of thing, being more family orientated. If you're in your car, and we're all learning this from having the lockdown experience, but if you're in the car all the time or you're not spending time with your family, then you start to be unhappy. And I think yeah. then there's no point working if you're unhappy because you're not actually going to be productive. So, it, And knowing that it's, it's staff, people that you work with, can you know they, they're in that industry or career for you know, 40 or 50 years. And, you know, it's a blimp in that timeline when you think about the practice yeah. of winter has only been around for five years so you know we're really in, in the infancy infancy and if we can't sustain a healthy um work-life balance during that period then what's the point of keep going forward yeah exactly you know what I mean? like, and so i think if there's a bigger firm it's much more 
crash and burn, people get really tired, they leave, go and have another practice, but it's the same issue everywhere they go. Unless we can change the way we manage practice and we manage our workflow yeah. and using these amazing systems, they're changing all the time. But, for example, I've got my iPhone here and I've got all the apps I need without actually even yeah. having to have a computer. I can still put in my timesheet. I can still check my um Workflow in Asana. Uh, I can use Zero to build clients. I can put my time down in projects. I've got calendar, so I know where I am. I've got the Google Drive, so I can access all the project files and everything in there straight away. Um, so if you really think about it, and, and Spotify, in case I want to hear what a, the rest of the office is listening to that day, so I don't know where they are. But what I'm getting at is even though we think, oh, it might be a big financial jump to go to all these technologies, all you need is really a phone and then maybe that's pretty much what everyone has anyway. Yeah, totally. So, you've, I mean, clearly, clearly you've taken a lot of time to really plan ahead as you've grown the practice. I get that feeling. Um what what is that planning process or that thinking process for you? When does that happen or or how does that take place? Is it something that you like have particular time in the week set aside for this kind of business strategy and planning and implementing new systems and processes, or is it just something that sort of happens naturally, like, you know, when you're out when you're in the middle of exercise or saying you have an idea and then, you know. It's very organic, but it is ultimately very selfish. So basically yep. the whole reason this practice exists and the whole reason all these things are happening is because I don't want to waste time. Yeah. And I'm super lazy when yep. it comes to I don't want to travel in the car to get somewhere in peak hour. I get I just don't. So I don't I won't do it. Like I without <laughs> so I'm like, well, if I'm gonna have a holiday, am I gonna take the public holiday? Probably not. I'll probably take another day so that I can I'm not competing with everyone else to go away. So yeah. my philosophy uh, is a little bit different generally. So I think and I just thought, well, if I don't feel like that, maybe no one else does. And sometimes I wake up in the morning and I'm not really efficient at a certain hour. So I just say, well. I might just go for a walk or I might go have coffee with someone and then and then when I've done that, I come back and I just spend maybe an hour or so more on it afterwards, but I'm, yep. I'm actually ready to yep. as opposed to forcing it. So it's, mm. it's about choice, it's about flow, it's about understanding where your needs are at and when you can do things because we're all, we all, we're not machines. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think it's just well, what can make my life easier, and how can I can how can I do that for the rest of the team? And so, as a and as an example, um, you know, I've got a, a lot of staff, and, and they're all different needs. So some some people need to be around others, and some people like to be independent. Some people need to be in the office some days. Some people don't. Uh, they have university work or families or. Um, or they just like to travel a lot so that, you know, don't have to be flexible around that. It's, you listen to what people need and then try and work around that, then then ultimately your practice will be better off and, and your staff will stay for longer and hopefully be happier. Or if not stay for longer, stay for a valued amount of time and then, then they can move on and be better people. That's interesting. So maybe switching over to a little bit more marketing stuff, but sort of related to this topic, you've got these you've got these people on your team, these presences in these other places, um, Torquay, Perth, and and so on. Um, does that 
help you from a visibility standpoint in those areas? Like, does that does that help to generate new project inquiries for the practice in those places? I guess it does put a bit of perspective on projects. I probably wouldn't say that it's helpful in terms of generating new work, but it does generate new thought processes. So, mm. so something that might be specific to us in Melbourne, it's cold or it's raining all the time, so when we're designing, we're thinking about that. Whereas they might be in a hot environment or windy environment and they're like, oh, we thought about And so that helps us to get a very um, holistic perspective on the yeah. project because often we get stuck in a in a – our own world as opposed to the realities beyond. It is really good um, in terms of feeling uh, connected, uh, having people interstate. Um, yeah. And that I think at the moment, uh, so Claire's now shifted onto Whispering Smith, which is really yep. great for a little bit because she needed some more um, local projects so that she could see stuff on site and, be part yeah. of the community and they're yeah. amazing. Uh, and then Jack's actually moved on to photography and film and he's mm. now, in terms of our marketing, produced our project profile shots and is looking at doing some video content for us mm-hmm. uh, along with the design and motive from Anthony Richardson. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. looking to put a lot more work online. And what I've found is that it's funny, uh, you would think that being physically connectable having an office somewhere or being there is, isn't really the draw card for clients. Clients are coming to us from, from word of mouth, yes, but they're also coming to us from our YouTube channel um, and a lot of them don't look at our website and a lot of them don't look at our Instagram. They're only looking at the experiences that are gained from other clients, so client testimonials and actually seeing the product from themselves. And I think the difference with video over film uh, like photography Photography is amazing and there's some beautiful uh, uh, photographers out there that capture a building lovely. But I think the difference with a film is that it can get you into the environment without actually physically having to go there. And you can be anywhere in the world. And I think the difference with the video is like uh, people from any country can understand buildings, that it needs to understand the language and they can see how rooms work or plans work and they can feel like they're in a lecture almost when you're speaking to them in that medium. So probably a little bit like podcasts as well where you you can engage with the psyche of the individual before you actually even meet them in real life. And I think that connection is really critical and a definite difference between how it would have worked even five years ago or ten years ago. and one of the, the key motivations for that is, um, do you in on ABC they used to have this in the mind of the architect? And I oh no, I don't know about it. Oh, it's just uh, yeah, not many people do. I'm a bit old. <laughs> um, the uh, the film there was like a documentary. One was by Sean Gossel, and I remember watching that when I was at university, quite young. And I was like, oh, that's amazing because I got to see how the clients feel about the building. I got to hear how he yeah. designed it. I get to see the building in its beautiful environment without just being a weirdo on the street looking through the gate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that there's that sense of mystery gets dissolved yeah. and also this welcomeness. It's like you get get go on a personal tour and I think there's that's so much better about telling the story about the process as opposed to just showing the outcome 
because that's yes. the difference with architects. You, you start a process with an architect, it can take three to five years. Yeah. By the time you go through planning, all the design, all the elements that need to get there. And I think uh, it can be really mysterious and confusing to clients, especially if they've never actually used an architect before or been through that process. They might find it really hard to understand. So I think video and communication on that level is the next thing. And I think yeah. if people don't jump onto that, then that's a bit silly. But, you know, there's people out there like Never Too Small, um, the Designer mm-hmm. Motive, Uzetta and um, J.R. Mounsey who can produce these films for you and they're just amazing. And I, I'm not sure if you can do that too, but I mean. No, 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 I can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't do that. Um, but but your video strategy was really um Probably one of the main reasons that I wanted you to, wanted to have you on the podcast to discuss it because you're pretty unique in Australian architecture in how many because there's there's a few firms that have you know one or two of these kinds of beautiful amazing project videos mm-hmm. but there aren't that many practices or small practices that have like seven or eight different you know absolutely killer videos for each project will have its own accompanying video I've, yeah. I've found for the most part for most of your projects so Bermagui Beach House, South Yarra House, Clifton Hill House and we'll come back to South Yarra House in a second because I want to talk about that video big time. Um, okay. Fitzroy Shiatsu you've done some stuff with Never Too Small so um, and it, listeners that have been listening to the podcast for a few episodes, we spoke to Anthony Richardson from the design episode probably like three or four episodes back and we discussed South Yarra House and a million views at this point. Um, but each of these projects and so many of them, um, there's I think Clifton Hill House has 150,000 views. I'm not, I haven't looked at what Never Too Small is, but mm. like really, I mean, pretty incredible outcomes in terms of visibility around these projects, right? You must be probably mixed feelings about it in some ways, but also really it must be very exciting to see that there's this much interest in the work that you guys are doing. Uh, I know about the the million views for South Yarra because uh, Anthony Richardson posted on LinkedIn, but I don't follow it. I don't watch it. I don't look at it. I don't read the comments. So if you make comments, sorry, I'm not looking. But... um, (laughs) I think what it is, what because the agenda isn't about um, ego, it's about presenting yeah. information to people so that they can feel safe in the design environment because the difference between Australia and Europe, for example, is that uh, we have this kind of we can do it ourselves mentality yep. and I think that that's fine and it can work in a lot of cases and it can be good but I think if you educate yourself on what good design is and then perhaps understand that there's people out there that can actually do this for you much more efficiently and much more effectively Um, and then you get a a different kind of product but it's much more considered. You might have thought, oh, I'll just renovate my bathroom or I'll just renovate my kitchen and you do it a bit bits by bits and then it doesn't quite ever work and I think the philosophy of thinking can be very different if you get a designer. It doesn't have to be an architect. It can be an interior designer. It can be anyone that um, has been had training, they can basically make it much more efficient for you, sort of that cut cut once, think twice mentality as opposed to this gung-ho, I'll just do this and I'll do that. You start chipping away, you end up losing more money and then yep. having no cohesion. Um, so is so that – so, yeah, yeah, sorry, Jane, go on. Uh, well, I think that's kind of really important um, to think about. And the videos and the, the, the way that we've done it online – 
I think what it, what it does is also it celebrates the hard work that's gone into it from a team perspective because what you might not know in all those videos is they're different budgets, yep. they're different types of client, but they're also different teams behind them. So in the film, you might see lots of people shutting and opening doors. Inside those uh, scenes are people <laughs> who worked on the project and not everyone yeah. practices. Is- I start to notice that when I look at your about page. I'm like, hey, I've, I've seen that person before yeah. opening a door or like... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, I think it's really important to, like, obviously um, there's a lot of people that work on a project, but I think uh, not everyone wants to be in front of a camera, but I think it's important to understand that there's a lot of people behind this and it's good to see them in those films, yeah. So so when when you're kind of creative directing or collaborating with one of these uh, videographers that you work with on, on one of these projects, what what what's your sort of um, thought process around you know when we're going to do the voiceover, the narrative, the storytelling? Is that something that you kind of plan for and and think about what what points are we trying to make here? Or, or I mean, talk a little bit about that process in terms of under you've got the visual, but then coming up with the storytelling or the interview aspect, like mm-hmm. for for the projects where you're commissioning it. So maybe separating the design motive and never too small where you're kind of featuring on a big channel, but where you're commissioning a video for one of your projects to go on your website and your YouTube channel. Um, how do you approach that storytelling aspect and, and what points do you try to cover in those videos? Well, my background is education. So I've taught a lot oh. at Beacon and Melbourne and uh, Swinburne um, and Monash. I've given lectures at. So the difference is, um, but I, I basically was teaching quite whilst I was still at university. Yeah. Quite commonly. And that was really important because it meant that I was learning how to communicate in a way that yeah. uh, not necessarily. Uh, translate to higher academia but more to different ways of thinking that taught me how to process information on the fly, so to speak. So when I go into these meetings like I am with you today, I I don't have anything prepared. I just speak from the heart and I try and be as honest as possible because I think that that's uh, not only transparent but it's also easier (laughs) in other ways. But in some ways um, I think there's architects or designers out there that might get a film, paid film together that they might want to orchestrate some of the topics. It depends on how they think and the way their mind works. But for me, I find that a little bit confusing and can disorientate the direction Mm. of the film. So good to pick key milestones that you want to talk about and then just be genuine with the way you communicate about your house or your space or whatever you've designed. Sure. To be authentic is probably the most best advice I would have. Also listen to the people who make the film because they're the ones who know what works best. Right. Okay. So, well, no, 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 absolutely. So I, I want to get the authentic, a little bit more on authenticity and a little bit more on those milestones you mentioned as well, because there's probably, there's two aspects to it. There's sort of actually kind of mentally walking through the project in a way oh. and making sure that you've kind of got this like maybe there is like a little tiny bit of a checklist or some common things to sort of think mm-hmm. about. Um, but that being authentic, maybe we should start there in terms of uh, obviously just being natural, not over-preparing and that sort of thing helps you to be authentic. But what, what, are some, what are some other things that help to be authentic when you're in a situation like that from your experience as a teacher and a communicator? Well, I think the important thing is to not 
uh, well, when you're lecturing, one of the biggest thoughts is you yeah. often, when you get overwhelmed with anxiety, you're trying to think, oh, everyone's going to, oh, I'm going to stuff this up and everyone's looking at me. Well, remember, when people are listening to you or watching you, they're not really watching you. They're thinking about what they can get from you yeah. and how they can learn from what you're saying. So most of the time they're thinking about their needs. So if you're talking to somebody, imagine presenting to a wider audience and even just one-on-one, you just need to think about what is it that they need to gain from this conversation and what is the direction that I'd like to guide them through. And so with every house that we present on video or or photography, we try and think about, well, what is it we're trying to communicate, which is really, well, I'm walking someone through the house. I'm showing them what we've done and how we've thought and then what the outcome is. And I think that that's, you know, very simple. Yep but also um, gives a lot because it's kind of like getting a private tour uh, with the designer and you know that personally you can't physically walk a million people through the South Yarra House, for example, but mm-hmm. having that one very clear short film has been able to connect to multiple people from multiple languages and communicate an idea and, and our, our, our sim- uh, what's seemingly simple uh, outcome but all of the complex ideas that have gone into it, and, and yeah, I think that's that's the most important thing. So. Uh- and is that where you feel that you're doing some educating in terms of you mentioned yeah. earlier that we're kind of changing opinions about how how you know, that we shouldn't just try to do it bit by bit and do it ourselves? That there's a real it's important to actually have a, a an idea for the whole thing right <laughs> to consider all the aspects together right yeah. and, and so that's sort of a cultural thing that you're looking to sort of yeah. here's an example of how doing it in a considered single way makes all makes such a big difference well i think this comes down to security and fear so i think a lot of people have not seen the path where you get an architect and you trust an architect and they take you all the way through I think people think, um, I'm not sure how much it's going to cost, I don't know how long it's going to take. There's this, this fear or they haven't, haven't seen it tested before. So they see things like um, multi uh, buildings that have been done many times and they go, oh, look, I'll just go for that because it's much easier. So there's that sort of a, I'm not good enough philosophy where I think yeah. that we're of an agent in a society in Australia is so intelligent and we're not, we're financially uh, you know, significant, we can actually, when we are good enough for these high quality outcomes, we are good enough for these energy efficient buildings. We are good for a passive house. It might be too expensive in our mind, but what is too, you know, life is short and you might as well just live better and, and have beautiful things. And, and when you spend your money, be conscious of those things as opposed to wasteful. So it's a bit like going to a um, very low cost shop and buying lots of things or you could go to a nice high quality shop that's actually thought about where the things have come from and who's made them and buy one thing that's really well made instead of having 10 things and then having to buy something else to fit those 10 things in it sort of creates chaos for no good reason you know yeah conscious and considerate with what you do and then it'd be easier and i think if you engage a designer or an architect you can actually get those outcomes without actually having to worry and the best part about engaging someone to do it is ideally you don't have to do anything at all except approve things and look at what you like and and then maybe think about how you can roll out that that conscious thought into other things so 
for example, we have a client who wanted a house in Bermagui and uh, we had a film done during construction, so it's not, not been shot yet yeah. and it's finished safe. Um, but they said, look, we just can't pick, we can't pick the sheets. I can't go to the shops and get those things. I'm too busy with my actual career. So we did everything. We, we Sheets, linen, towels, toothpaste, toothbrushes, uh, knives, forks, plates, fire yeah. ready to put in the fireplace, everything. So, you know, if you if you engage an architect, an interior designer and people who have a team that can actually get everything for you and you know that everything has been selected for your house, for you and for that place, it's so particular and special. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's something else because otherwise you're going to have to work harder to and, and, and spend all your weekends traveling around getting these things when we can do that for you. So, it's interesting. So, the, the audience of this podcast is other architects. So, they would be listening to you talking about that and going, you know what, like we sort of just take that for granted that that's part of what we do and it's probably not thought about that, hey, maybe the public don't actually know all that stuff that's, you know, quite obvious to us in a way. We know what well, we do. Know they can. Yeah. So yeah, we- but... But do you think maybe that it's, it's really important to make sure that you're that you are actually giving people the information about these are some of the things that we do. We're like, don't take it for granted that everybody knows what an architect does all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think a lot of well people who engage an architect or are considering it are considering it because they're time poor, or they don't have the skill, or they don't have the energy to do yeah. all the things that are involved, or not under there's clarity and misunderstanding of how much needs to be done. Yeah. They might have gotten out, they might have started the process and realised how hard it is and then gone, oh, look, I just can't do this again or it's just not worked out the way I thought it would. And so I think if we, if, if you're an architect and you want to not upsell but um, gauge a client and then present to them some of the options that they could get, so basically providing a service beyond the service that we limited for architectural services, you know, we can do most things for a client. So elevate um, elevate their existence by um, providing the client with full, fully furnished house or landscape architect in coordinated project, that kind of thing. Like, yeah. So it's like not just sitting in a silo, we're thinking in collaboration with artists or all sorts of things, a bit like a bigger firm would, but on a smaller scale project. Yes. Uh, I, I bet you've got some really amazing thoughts on fee proposals and we'll kind of, we'll come back to that in a second, maybe. Um, but going back to the, going back to the videos just quickly, and you did mention that, you know, that's where I put it to you that, you know, does having a local presence help in terms of broadening out where your projects come from and getting beyond the sort of 10 kilometer radius around Fitzroy or whatever that, you know, some firms get stuck in and, and, and you came back and said, no, really, I mean, the YouTube is the main driver for us and so you know when did that st- first start coming clear to you that hey video is like really effective because in hindsight of course that makes sense why i mean showing somebody allowing somebody that view into the architecture and that that emotional experience and hearing hearing your storytelling and getting the closest thing they can to possibly being there the effectiveness of it is is just it just absolutely makes sense but um, when did it when did it first become kind of clear that hey this is working and we're actually kind of getting new projects from doing these videos? Um, well, when we meet with a potential new client, we never we never engage someone 
without meeting them in real life. So, yeah. or digitally if they can't be in real life. Um, but we have to meet with them with eye contact <laughs> and we have to get an understanding of who they are because it's, it's kind of like dating, you know, it's a yeah. long-term thing and they need to meet who might be working on their projects so they understand that when they don't pay their fees or the invoices that these are the people it affects and it mm. kind of create, and we always do it in our office or in our space so then they have an understanding of, it's kind of vulnerable because they're coming into our space, but it's also showing them who we are and being really, you know, open about that. So I think um, when when we're in that process and we're talking to them, we're asking them about, you know, who they are, what they do for a living, how they'd like to live and why their house isn't working or their space that they have isn't working for them. We then... Um, ask them how they found us and sometimes it can be multiple qualifiers but sometimes it's just word of mouth but then also maybe it might be they watched a YouTube video of someone they liked but then yeah. they saw the video that, of us and they thought, oh, they might interview us as well. So they, they might be interviewing a few people as well. Yeah. And it go, does work both ways. If the fit doesn't work on their end and on, and on our end, you know, then it's, it's probably not going to work. But, yeah, we do ask them and, and most of the time we've discovered that they're not looking at Instagram and they're not looking at our Facebook. Yeah. They're, they're watching your videos. Or, yeah, on our website. They might look at our website briefly, but they don't go into their website too deeply. Yeah. yeah do, you feel, do you feel that the videos are helpful also for kind of maybe filtering out possibly some of the wrong type of clients or new projects as well that the videos are helpful for kind of showing a little bit of your personality and what you guys are like and that you are real people and that if people see that personality and it resonates with them then they're more likely to come in whereas if they feel that they're not going to be on the same page as you then they might you know look elsewhere and it's helpful for that it's a safe place to imagine if you were in the position of a client where you were looking for someone to work with instead of wasting your time you can figure out who they are before you meet with them well, yes. I much prefer to do my research than go to someone and yes. feel like I've already got an idea of whether I'd like to or not. It's just sort of makes sense, you know. Yep. Yeah. I feel like it would be really intimidating walking into an architect's office where they didn't have a picture of themselves on their website. You couldn't read anything that they'd written. You can't hear their voice anywhere. You've just got absolutely no idea what yeah, kind it's of like person. A first date. Like oh, an absolute blind date. date. That would be that'd be pretty <laughs> scary, I reckon. I wouldn't I maybe it's just me, but I would be a bit put off by it. that. That's yeah. What we do now. If you think about it, most firms don't if you're a small practice, you don't really even have a photo of yourself because you haven't invested in it. Yeah, then, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love that you said they don't have the small photo because they haven't invested in it. That's exactly why. Sometimes people are just like, it's too expensive or I'm not going to invest the money all the time to get a decent photo of me. They won't know who they are and then they yeah. get it looking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so sometimes a firm will wait until maybe we'll get a profile or we'll get some press that will allow us to kind of, you know, be interviewed and what is my point of view and what what's my message and what do I, what sort of architecture do I believe in? But but you guys have just gone, you know, like that will happen. We will get interviewed. You're being interviewed right now, I guess. But we can also just kind of make our own content that gives us the opportunity to talk about that sort of thing. We're well, not- it doesn't matter how many awards you win. It doesn't how many interviews yeah. you win. All that matters is that the client feels that like they can work with you and they're getting an amazing outcome and that you're providing an amazing outcome. And that first contact is really critical because I think, you know, it's, it's a long-term relationship. It's a lot of money that people and a lot of heart that goes into these things and you need to make sure that you feel like you're making the right decision. 
And well, what are some simple qualifiers that you can provide to create security around that decision for someone? Well, you just give them what they might need, which is maybe some not necessarily evidence of what you've done, but maybe just evidence or an understanding of the process and how you work and what you're like and, and what what kind of outcomes you can potentially generate for them. So it's not it's not about you, it's about them. So so is, is the vision that eventually you've got a video maybe for every project on the website? Because I see on the site at the moment, you've got, yeah. yeah, you've got a selection of, you've got basically a very long list of projects. And obviously a lot of them I think are like kind of in progress or sort of mm-hmm. coming soon. We don't present projects that aren't finished on our website. Yeah, cool. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. So the un, the coming soon section is really just a list of names, right? You don't well, go, you, you never get maybe. tempted to, maybe we should put a couple of little Revit renders up there or uh, something like that. That's <laughs> So from teaching, um, I've found like students often put like pretty bad renders on. They tend to fill a page, right? Yeah, padded. Pictures, Mm. stuff, colour, and they're they're all bad. Except if they thought about it, you could have one really good picture Mm. that shows everything about the story and one really good drawing, be it a section that's also an axo that's also a bit of a render. Think about it simply. You know, it's harder to do that than it is to put them all on a page. And now that we have technologies, the temptation is to fill us with stuff. Yep. Conscious and considered is basically the philosophy of our practice, but also the philosophy of communication. So when yep. we put together a big proposal, we put together a presentation. We only have like four or five pages. That's it. You don't need you don't need more than that. You don't need much words. Who has time to read that? Like I as yep. a client. If I was receiving a fee proposal that was huge or a schematic design that had lots of options and stuff, it's overwhelming. It's too hard. So provide very clear direction, very honest and open uh, position, and that's it. So one of my pet peeves in teaching was bad renders, and I think one of my pet peeves is probably industry-wide and probably something I haven't nailed but those um, high-end renders, they seem they, they can be good sort of in a commercial presence. But if you're dealing with a project, the this I know this sounds a bit mysterious, but yeah. imagine you're a client and you're seeing sort of rough 3Ds and you're seeing rough um, plans and get a bit of an idea and then you walk into your finished house, there is something so different about that. You cannot catch that in a, in a 3 render because it's an atmosphere thing. It's the... The, the, the way the light moves in the space, it's the way that this, this, you can see the ocean through the window at that particular time of day because that's how we thought about it. The wind's not going to hit you when you're on the deck because you know cuddled it around the corner. Yeah. Like you can't put that in a render. There's no way you can communicate that in, in these things. So, I mean, it's nice but it's not needed and often the render's better than a finished outcome when you put them side by side and they could be legitimate lawsuits that could come from people thinking it shouldn't have any X, Y, Z in it because it's got this. Because the, the truth about a render is it doesn't show all of the, the say, the, I don't know, in a commercial instance it could be the fire hydrants and the, and yeah. the security cameras and stuff and they just think they're getting a clean ceiling, whereas in reality it might not be quite that way. So I think that the distance between the communication and the atmosphere is missed. We can allude to it, but I don't think we should we should yep. go down the path. I, I, that's just my position though. No, I, no, I love it. I love your position on it. And uh, it's sketches, great. Yep. You know, in, yeah. in 
meetings with clients, I'll have a pen and paper and I'll just draw a 3D drawing, you know, yeah. and, that, and that it's targeted to what they need to look at as opposed to the whole picture. Sure. Yeah. So, so a lot of the time, the reason that those rough, aka bad renders, end up on the websites and the Instagram is because they've been produced in house for clients, right? So it's part of the client communication process. And it's like, well, we've got them. So, you know, and let's like sort of um, tantalize people with these upcoming projects. You know, the idea being that everyone loves the idea of these renders, but clearly, you know, these renders are a big problem, bad renders. But so it start, but it starts from the point of we've already made it, so let's do something with it. So are yeah, you just fine. to clarify? Are you sort of are you doing any kind of rendering as part of your process, or is it really just drawing sketches and that sort of thing? Can, to your we point do, about you know, mm. yeah, we do renders. We have Revit, and it generates some very high quality Revit yeah. renders. But we don't, we don't, you don't present them to yeah. the world. We present them to the client. It's kind of like. Yeah. I know this sounds weird, but also the process that we have with the client is like a private experience. We only yeah. present to the world what we have qualified with the client as the photos are approved and then the filming is approved. We don't present all the, the workings. The only way we show snippets of workings is on our Instagram, yep. which is a kind of like a low-res, in-progress shots on site or, you know, moments that we appreciate. And that's probably the way, only way we can capture and communicate those things. But I think, and I do understand why people do them, but I think it was a very considered choice to only show finished product because it's a long process and it is about finished product to, in a lot of ways. Like if you can't, you can generate a design at an early stage, but if it doesn't get built, then, you know, yeah. it's kind of not real. Yeah, under, uh, totally. And also only showing like the real most impactful, amazing looking work on your website, it, it generally ca- creates a much better first impression, doesn't it? There's less distractions. There's, no. you know, yeah, it's just nice, considered, consolidated. It all makes sense. I really yeah, like that. And, and we are looking at refurbishing our website because it's the same website we've had for five years. Yeah, same old and Squarespace you've had for a, for a bit. I yeah, like it. We, I think it's nice. <laughs> oh, thank you. It is simple, but I think we're, we're going to shift it a little bit into a much more clean um, aesthetic. And again, that consolidated. And I think it's important yeah. too that uh, to remember when you're running a practice or you're starting a practice to think about it. It's not the end. It's constantly evolving. So just be open to that. But the only difference is that you have to have a clear agenda. So manifesto, if you're thinking like a university student, or yeah. Um, you know, a clear target or sense of purpose that you want to create and try and hold on to that purpose. So if if you do want to generate lots of work and you want to you just want to do it fast paced and renders are fine and that's fine. But ours is much more slower, it's much more quality, it's much more it's always about the client and their needs and their outcomes. A lot of our designs, they might have an undertone of of the way that we work, but they are very special and unique to each client. Mm. It's Again, interesting. it's not about us. Because when you it. said you need a purpose a second ago, I was thinking that it was going to go in a direction around, I don't know, something about something about the work, about the outcome. But then you really quickly said it's more of a thing about a method or an approach in a sense of, or, a, you know, an atmosphere that we're trying to create <laughs> than exactly. anything. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. In terms of it's as much about how we work as about what we produce. That's that's, that's totally like what you think about university. You don't get taught how to create a render. You don't get taught how to you know, make a plan look a certain way. You you come at it at your own way. It's the way you think about plans, the way you think mm. about the render. It's the way you think that it matters, not the way you produce it because that's been happening for thousands of years. You know, people can draw, they can make models. They didn't have technology. Uh, for example, when I was at uni, we did all handmade models and all hand drawings and that kind of thing. So, it, you don't necessarily need the technology. It's sort of it's the thinking that you need that's the difference. And that's what people pay you for when they engage you. So you are selling that knowledge the way that you think, not not how what you produce or how you produce it. It's it's diff, it's like content is very different. Um, some um, architects that don't ever even create drawings, they might only make models and, and use people that uh, you know, craftsmen that they can communicate verbally with on site. And obviously we we come from, most of the team comes from a larger practice background. So we are working at a higher level on smaller projects. So some sort of like, you know, million dollar projects yeah. up to, you know, five to 20 million, but depending on the project. But the, the philosophy is that human-centred connectivity that I think bigger business models probably lose because they're more about committees or generalising it so that it matches all parties where we, like, focus completely on that client's outcome. Yeah, that's interesting. In terms of the ideal client that fits that mould for you, um, and I... I, I always like asking architects about, you know, how what's your process for kind of qualifying qualifying new project inquiries that you get, and because it is it is that that precious little bit of time that you've got to meet with somebody, and you know, as you mentioned earlier, find out whether that long term relationship is going to work out. But what are some of the what are some of the things that you look for in a, in a in a new client or a new project that indicate to you that ah oh, this is the kind of this is really a winter client they're sort of meant to be with us. I think there's someone who's open to working with us, so they're listening to, they can listen to us and are open to thinking differently about their space. So a lot of what we do is we unpack what's currently happening in their environment to re-evaluate it and sort of think about it maybe even a little bit differently. And if you're not open to thinking a little bit differently, then it's probably not going to work because we might shuffle things around a bit. It's almost like we're going through your closet and mm. we're working out, you know, it's private, it's personal and it's emotional most of the time. So we're asking very sort of direct questions about, you know, well, how many, if it's an office environment, how many staff do you have, what working hours and where do you work and how do you like to engage with clients, that kind of thing, or if it's a house, you know, are you morning people, are you evening people, how do you like to work, where do your family come when they come, do they know where to go? This is kind of some of the questions that, um, that we yeah. ask and it can unravel a lot of people because there's a lot of thinking going on because it's not just about um, and commonly we get clients who come to us in the present and they're like, oh, yeah, I need this, that and this. And they go, okay, so what about in five years or in ten years? And then they're like, oh, yes. And some, sometimes it's shifted the program because they're like, oh, actually, we do want to start a family or we might want to have... Um, the parents live with us eventually or, you know, how we design the house now that we might need X, Y, Z. So yeah. often 
the process can actually change the direction of the project, which comes back to the fees and how we uh, qualify clients. So mostly it's not about, it's understanding that we purchase quality over quantity. And then we also design quality over quantity. So if your budget isn't, is only a million, for example, um, but you want a $5 million project, you know, we have to work out, well, is it the size that you really need? Do you really need that many bedrooms, that many bathrooms, or is it, do you just need a certain type of space? So then we just make it a smaller footprint and then it can still generate all the needs, but it's just not like what, you know, it's, yep. it might not be the what you originally thought it would be. And so it's just reevaluating what it is and then um, working it out that way. So then our fees yep. are generally for the first stage, which is the concept sort of schematic design area. Um, sometimes clients don't even have a plan or an idea, so we do a master plan or a feasibility and then we do a schematic design. Mm-hmm. And that, that section's fixed fee. Mm-hmm. We get it costed by an external cost consultant, QS, um, and then we um, then we charge a, a percentage of the budget. So uh, for the DD, it'll be, you know, 3 to 5% depending on the project scale of the budget. And then for the construction documentation set, it's, you know, 4 to 6% of the project budget. But yep. it, in between each stage, it gets const- constantly costed by someone else. So the budget is, the scope is completely in control of the client and then our fee is directly attached to that because typically if there's, uh, the scope of works is a certain scale, then our work to generate it is a, a certain scale, so it's equivalent to that. And then when we're on the site or we're communicating to try and get builders, it's always hourly rate. So because yep. we just don't know how long it may take or how efficient it could be or efficient it could be. So some clients have builders they've worked with before, then therefore it might take a few hours to do contracts or to be on site it might be much more trustworthy. Whereas some clients or some builders that might be different, much more hands-on, much more change happening when we're on site and then therefore the hours might increase. Um, yeah. We do, and we do work all over the place. So the, the only difference there is that we just charge for our time to travel somewhere. So some clients, uh, you know, they might be in Queensland or New South Wales. They're happy to pay for our time, knowing that they it's a transparent process. And obviously, when I mentioned before about the phone and yeah. systems that we use, it's all transparent. So every invoice that they get, it's every hour that we do is billed to them. Client right. Fee. Okay. So there's no sort of discussion about what we do and how long it takes it's very transparent so i think i think that's being open and and clear with your clients about the communication is fine and you can set expectations say it typically takes about xyz time um, and then they can have budget towards that but i think you know if you really um, think about it clients if they're really good at their own jobs they can earn more money than trying to be on site and do whatever they think they need to do in the design process they can pay you instead and you're much more efficient and so um as architects we can project manage the site on site we can we can do all the phone calls at all hours uh, from builders if there's an emergency and we know how to respond so you clients don't have to worry about that at all obviously it's transparent they see the the communication but they don't have to necessarily do anything about it themselves so like to sort of sum up some of those things with the client, maybe it's like they have to be okay having somebody sort of um, maybe getting so- inside their bubble a little bit inside of their yeah. personal space. Um, open to that. 
be open to that investigative process, maybe uh, like a willingness to change and suggestion of change maybe in terms of maybe have you considered doing this differently or that differently is something that shouldn't insult or offend them <laughs> or they, or they, oh, should, they, should, they shouldn't have a fixed, they open, they're willing to have an open mind in that, in that sense. Trusting and listening to you guys, actually wanting your advice, wanting yeah. your expertise is important. Like they're paying for it. They should definitely value it. <laughs> so, that's that's important. Um, and also this kind of sort of keeping a little tiny bit of a distance when work's going on, like benefiting from that transparency. I can see everything that's happening and you guys are doing your part to make it as transparent as possible, but not sort of micromanaging that being over-involved in, in the process. Would that, is that sort of like, when I, when I go through those, are you like, oh, that's like our perfect client? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Like it, it doesn't really matter about um, our perfect client. is really someone who can really trust and be open to the experience. And then, you know, at the end of the day, they'll get a product that might, may actually enhance and hopefully transform their existence, which is ideally the most powerful outcome we can get. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I sort of wish I could go through the process myself one day, hopefully. Oh, there you go. Would you like work with your own, you would obviously work with your own team oh, or do you, or do you want to go, oh, I want to go, I want to go somewhere else and see how it's done I over there. I get a few more collaborators. Definitely a landscaper, definitely a, an artist, definitely all these things. Yeah. You get, you get a lot of things involved. That's The more creatives, the better the outcome. And is that something that you... You, you mentioned a couple of times this idea if we get these other creatives, artists and things like that involved. Um, is that something you also discussed, you know, pretty early on with the with the client, this idea of, hey, who else could we, you know, yeah, how do you sort of raise that idea? Because they thought they they thought they came for the architect and then, you know, you open the uh, meeting room door and the artist comes out and everyone else comes out. Yeah, like this, okay, you, you've approached an architect tentatively, meaning with a few Someone comes to you and goes, I have all the consultants. I have multiple of these people that you can tap into at any time. If you want, would you want that? And then knowing that you can just go, okay, yeah, I, they collaborate with this artist and this artist. I like that one. Let's go with it. You know, and if you open it at different times, it, different, you know, it might actually, you might just think, well, why would you worry about doing that research about all these other consultants when you can go to someone who can actually get all that for you. So think about it from architecture practice point of view. You have all these connections and in the industry, you just make the process so much easier for the client because you already know that you can work with these people or you really admire their work. Um, and then the client just benefits. Yeah. That's you benefit great. Because you get to work with these amazing people. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, on Including the other architects, but as well. Oh yeah, of course. Right. When would you guys do, would that, would that be like a real, you know, would you take different aspects of the project or would you be collaborating on the same, like we're both working on the architecture and the interior? It depends, right? Depends on them and us. And so like with Field Office, for example, Mm. I used to share a studio with him when when Winter Architecture with us just starting and, um, you know, a lot of the time it would be just like workflow management, a bit like in a larger firm. It's just imagine it's an extension of your team or in a large firm joint venture with another firm. So yeah. if you think about it from a small practice point of view, it just makes your team bigger and yeah. better and more efficient. Like it just makes so much sense. Yeah. And um, unfortunately for um, 
Chris and I, we think very similarly. <laughs> so uh, when we both went away for one, for the Alston Week House, for example, we both did a sketch and it was very similar. It was so funny. And then <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, well, we don't even have to, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When your values align or things like that, then you can, but you can also learn. Like he, he opened my mind in certain ways about um, tectonics and I'm hopefully – you know, challenged him a little bit on, or opened his mind about well, materiality in some ways. So, in that instance, in that Alston project, clients got more bang for their buck. They got two architects. They got really considered design. Um, someone was always available to. We meant we could um, be there all the time, and it worked particularly well for Chris because he had to work remotely for a period of time in Indonesia. Yeah. Um, so that meant that there was always someone local for yeah. him to work with. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, the, I suppose the challenge of the less is more approach overall and the slower in the considered approach when it comes to marketing these days, right, is that there is sort of like um, you're sort of drawn towards more frequent stuff, more frequent posting on social media, email, updates to the websites and so on, getting published more often. There's always a sort of more, more, more kind of thing that goes on. Uh, but you guys obviously, and you're shaking your head <laughs> right now, which I love. Um, absolutely not your approach, right? So your approach to all those things, how would you sort of describe how you think about well, it? Well, some people have said, well, how do you do your Instagram? And I'm like, well, it just happens organic. It actually literally happens. Yeah. Taking the photos. Um, obviously, I did a big bow at Bermudui, so I tried to limit it, but I had like 30 photos that I put out over a few weeks. Yeah. It only happens as it's happening. So it's literally, it's not a, um, it's not a, Force, yeah. It's not a, on a timer or something. It's yeah. all, it's authentic, you know. It's happening. It's live. I mean, it is yeah. orchestrated in a lot of ways. Like, like we, we like set it up so that it's beautiful and it looks beautiful consistently. But you know, there's, so there's a consistent brand image there going. But it's not uh, the content isn't driven by um, an uh, an agenda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's, and then the website itself, you know, it, it has an it has a simple setup so that I can we can add to it or we can ex- extract from it. I'm the main person that updates the website, so I say yeah. hi in that instance. But it's really uh, it's set up so that it can grow and change, but be very clear. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think the, and trying to focus not on your awards and not on you, but on the projects and the outcomes for the client is, I think, the key key thing. Yeah, yeah, think absolutely. Branding comes at oh, we do this, we're so awesome, and this is awesome. But people don't really care about you; they care about what they can have from you or how they can grow from using your it, product. Is that kind of and again, go back to the videos? Is that sort of mostly conveyed by the videos, or is there anything else that I'm missing in terms of ways that you do that? What are your? Do you have any other outlets that that allow you to kind of communicate? on that line of thinking with potential clients? Uh, well, the, the, in life, real life, um, client um, referrals, so people use oh, of course. Yep. experience from the growth verbally. And yep. then, um, yeah, the videos, I think, yeah, and then obviously we try and place it on our website, but I feel like that's sort of a secondary qualifier. Like they've already, if you're looking at a website, you already know about you. Yeah. So it's yeah. Not- that's no that's an important insight so it's not they're not 
you know, they're not finding you from your website. They're finding you somewhere else through word of mouth or through one of some other video or just on YouTube in general. Um, and then on Instagram, they're also probably coming across your photos when they're successful and they get seen in other places and yeah, stuff like that. Magazines as well. Do you, in the, as far as your media, you, I mean, you're also LinkedIn and you're, you're kind of across the board. I think I even saw at one point you guys were maybe running like a little tiny bit of Google ads as well or something. I might have imagined that, but yeah. experiment. you're experimental and you experiment with different things. Um, you're not just doing, you know, just doing inst- the occasional post on Instagram. You're dabbling in a lot of different areas as well as making some pretty big investments in photography and video. So, but do you sort of consider yourself a practice that does like a lot of marketing or or not much or, or how do you how do you see it? Well, it's really important to us to capture the moment because, you know, uh, if you don't, it's lost. And I, I'll show you an example of a marketing thing that we did, which is not quite but um, this is like a, halfway through the construction because um, the project we took about, I don't know, two years to be on site and so we knew that to as a Christmas gift we gave the client a book because the mm. client themselves had never I'd never met really like I met with someone that yep. related to. And so we were we wanted to give him an idea of what he was getting because you know and so this is a little bit of a the story of the project and then us selecting the stone when we were up in Sydney. And this oh, was okay. website, so you can see it, just images of the old house that was relocated and then some beautiful shots that Jack took of the house under construction. So you can see the beauty of the site and the beauty of the framing and yeah. you can see the team who's been working on it. So it's a bit like um, and then at the very end we have a list of all the people who have worked on it, so all the landscape yeah. Everything. So it's a bit like a, I mean, how many people get books on, on the Yeah, I know it looks beautiful. Process. So that's sort of like it sends a different sort of message. It's like a more personalised, you know, and yeah. that I think and is kind of like a thank you because I think honestly uh, you give people things as, as a marketing exercise, why and things. It's nice but it's not really connection, yeah. mm-hmm. personal connection. There's so it's, how do I put it? Um, more yeah. sensitivity again, I guess. Yeah. But also, we we all love working on people's projects for them. You know, we we put a lot of our heart into these things, and so even though it's their project, we love their project. Yeah, and and although you made the client a book, you also made yourself a book in a way I too. Because <laughs> I feel I feel like that book is probably one of your most like cher- like the, the okay. cherished possessions in the studio. Yeah. Like, and all the people and all yeah. the life that went into this is lovely. And now I look back and I think, oh yeah, like you know, all the different people who worked on this is it's really nice. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And and I and I imagine you feel similar way about the the photos that you take on Instagram as well. I mean yeah. they're 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 your personal record of like some pretty like meaningful life experiences, right? And stages in your business and projects mm-hmm. that you've worked on and the team as well. Because I think a lot of people focus on that the place they want to get to, and they forget about the process. It's kind of like a hike, you know. You yeah, you know, for four or five days, and you go to a place, but you, you sort of, it's not the place; it's the the, the path on the way, and the weather how it changed, and the conversations you had with people on that journey. That's kind of the content that you need to capture a little bit too. So try not to yeah. forget about the process. Yeah, and that's and that's 
where that authenticity comes from that you're sort of producing the content that way. You're not seeing it as like, I don't care at all about the present and what's going right on right now. I just care about the final outcome, but I'm going to set myself this chore to create these images so that I can share them on social media. <laughs> it's like... I mean, it's, think about it from a client's perspective, well, what is yeah. that? It's a mystery. And so, they don't know what that, that they're going yeah. to go to a stone place and select the stone or that they're going to go to certain places with you or sketches and, and models. The process is really not revealed to them. I think that that's... Different. And you can't force it. You can't. And everyone, every project is different. So you've got to tailor it. Uh, be open to that flexible yeah. thought. Otherwise, you, if you try and do a rigid way, it's never going to, it'll yeah. always just not quite fit properly. You're a very prolific marketer, Gene, I reckon. I don't, I don't know if you sort of feel feel that way, but I feel like you you do a lot of stuff. You're very active. Um, yeah. It must take up a lot of your time. Not really, because it kind of happens when I'm at Alimentari or... Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I might just be on my phone and I can add... I might. I like things on Instagram. I like things on LinkedIn, but I don't... It's a bit like um, having a social presence. You try and limit the time that you focus on it. So say I might yeah. allow an hour a day to check my emails and yeah. check my Instagram. And then I might turn it off and leave it in the cupboard because otherwise I get... Distracted. Yeah, of course. But when I'm doing something, I'm focused and I try not to be all over the shop. And I think that's really something I'm learning still to do, but it's very important. It's like I started making sure that I finish at 5.30 by having something else to go to, like a yoga class instead of working. Yeah. So I think a lot of practice owners end up working stupid hours in order to try and yeah. catch up with their own idea of where they need to be as opposed yes. to where they actually should be and then, you know, Think about it. You work a good time if you do a certain amount of hours a day over a course as opposed to big hours and then you crash. You know, it's about mm. consistency as opposed to this crash and burn sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of practices seem to go through these cycles where they'll do like a couple of weeks of just late nights and they sprint and they go as hard as they possibly can and then they just hope that there's going to be a few quiet weeks after where they can just kind of recover but it's um as well yeah it does it's like end of semester put in portfolio and then you get a few weeks off (laughs) and i think that's sort of like traumatic to be honest yeah it's not healthy you're driven by doing those sorts of feelings but i think there's also some it's unhealthy i think it's there's some sort of adrenaline that we get from having that, being energised in that way, but I think it's un- unproductive long-term. So, yeah. yeah, but if you do need to have some time, if you're finishing something, remember to take that time off too, you know. That's yeah. sort of important, just as important. And, yeah, I think if you're running a small practice, if you're not, if you're not looking after yourself, then the, it's not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you're playing the long game right that sustainability yeah. is about going you know this is a this could be a 10 15 20 year 30 year 40 yeah. year practice if you want it to be oh, right i could be in my 80s yeah that's i was gonna say it i was thinking imagine you in your 80s going i still i'm still yet to burn out <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm cool. doing like, yeah he, he's still doing exactly exactly I think, you know, that's inspirational. I think we can all aim for that. And there's heaps of work to be done. I think if the market, 
if the market changes and people want to value themselves in their spaces more, well, we'll just have more work to do. And so yep. there's heaps to do, heaps of time. Just like be conscious about what you do and then create quality products and then sort of lots of bad things sort of. Yeah, that's interesting. Just one final question on that on that point about there will be more work to do and there will be more work in the future. Mm. Um, you you have many people that work for you now and you've and you've grown the practice and um, do you how do you feel about kind of controlling how quickly you grow the practice because sometimes there's this quite a big source of pressure that causes people to work architects to work kind of crazy hours is that they just feel that they have to take on every project and then they're in a hurry to hire new people and the staff are overworked and there's always this idea of we have to take on whatever the work comes i know that you guys aren't doing that but how do you think about sort of managing that growth i don't think that that's uh, um, i think that's completely common and it's constant so I, I'm struggling with business management from that perspective because there's that internal, have I got enough money coming in to sustain the practice? What yeah. I did is instead of worrying about it and not knowing the mystery of it, is I did what I, the advice, I took the advice that I give my clients, which is to engage somebody who knows what they're talking about to actually do those things for you. So I've, we've got a we've got eight staff with yeah. different backgrounds um, and all kinds of skill bases. But we also have three ancillary staff. So one's a bookkeeper, one's a design coach. So he talks to us about how we present ourselves to the community and how we look at oh, wow. ourselves and our well-being. Cool. That's, That's awesome. Mr. Mitchell and um, he's a designer. He's practiced, he's called the design coach. And so he takes people to Byron Bay for a week and gives you retreats and you talk to business people and, and designers who run practices for lots of time to understand how you can challenge yourself and change your your um, practice for the better. Yeah. And we also have a business coach who talks to us about finances, which is Archibiz. And so yeah. Ray Brown, who's the Previous leader, guest. <laughs> yeah, he, he's actually on our – he's a chairman of our board, which we never had a board before. Yeah. But we're a company. So, we, you know, it's a company. It's run like a machine. It's run like a big firm but small. Yeah. Theoretically, if we wanted to grow, we could. If we so at the moment we've got eight, we could we could grow with the systems that we have in place to fifty within a two year period to a hundred within three. The, yep. the difference is the choice and the quality of the projects and the quality of the outcomes. So what we actually want to do is um, focus our energy on higher um, quality products and higher quality buildings for people who are willing to take a little bit longer or, or be more conscious with the way they're spending their money and, and, and using us to really think about their buildings and create amazing spaces for them because I'd prefer to create lots of projects that are really beautiful and thoughtful than um, thousands of really ordinary buildings that are just sort of talked because there's lots of that going on and I think it's important that you know, we, we start to be more connected and uh create beautiful purposeful spaces and that's kind of what we would like to do yeah Jean, i really appreciate you coming on thank you so much we can, we'll finish up there uh, i'd love to have you on again in the future to hear the what what's going on someone else in the team like helen or Cara, who oh, that'd be a good idea maybe we could do like a job yeah that would be a really good idea that'd be yeah. awesome but um thank yeah, you thank, thanks <laughs> oh we could do like a turkey episode that'd be fun <laughs> then oh, i get to go to turkey maybe very fun. Yeah. <laughs>
Perfekt. Well, that was my conversation with Jean Graham from Winter Architecture. If you'd like to learn more about Jean, you can visit winterarchitecture.com.au or follow them on Instagram at winterarchitecture. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every second week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So, I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your podcast app. If you have any feedback on this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I love hearing your thoughts and feedback. And if you'd like to learn more about me, Dave Sharp, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects. That's all for this episode, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.